Nisambola Vinaka, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific Ngo Okoroe Hawkins. Coming up today, a Solomon's academic says fears about China establishing a military presence in Honiara are misguided. The Solomon Islands Agreement is very broad and very vague, and I'm wondering whether that's intentional. There are calls for more health funding for Pacific medical providers in New Zealand. We've got to look at a whole development workforce strategy for Pacific, not not just a band-aid solution. And... Rio Tinto has not yet agreed on funding the cleanup. Instead, they've agreed on funding the assessment. We check in with Bougainvilleans seeking redress for the destruction caused by the Panguna mine. A Solomon Islands political scholar says concerns China will base warships in Honiara following the finalisation of a security treaty between the two countries is unjustified. The University of Hawaii's Director of Pacific Island Studies, Tarsisius Kabutaulaka, says the reaction from Australia, New Zealand and the United States is understandable, but establishing military bases in other nations isn't how China operates. He says the Beijing-Honiara security pact has also made it evident that domestic political differences are the biggest security threat for the Melanesian nation. He spoke to RNZ Pacific Regional Correspondent Kelvin Anthony. I can understand the reactions from Washington, D.C., Canberra and Wellington. And I think this was expected, given the things that we've seen in the past. What I mean by the things we've seen is that China has provided police assistance in the form of equipment. And also a few Chinese police officers have been to Honiara. And there was an MOU that provided for that kind of assistance that was earlier signed. Given that, plus given the fact that China has signed security agreement or similar kinds of agreements with other Pacific Island countries, uh, it is understandable that the relationship with Solomon Islands would eventually lead to a security agreement. And, and I must say that the agreement with Fiji, the 2011 agreement, and then the supplementary agreement in 2014, if you have a look at it, it's much more comprehensive than the one that they have with the Solomon Islands. The Solomon Islands agreement is very broad and very vague. And I'm wondering whether that's intentional on the part of both Chinese government and also the Solomon Islands government. PM Sogavare has said that it is insulting to be seen as not being able to manage uh, his country's national affairs. Do you think that uh, Canberra, Wellington and Washington, do they see it from that perspective? I think there are different reactions from all these countries. And I see that the Minister for Foreign Affairs from New Zealand prefaced her comments about what happened in the Solomons by first saying that New Zealand acknowledges and respects Solomon Islands' sovereign rights to make these kinds of decisions and to create partnership with whoever they want. But having said that, I think they are concerned that this could escalate to much greater Chinese presence. I think, you know, the word coming out 
from all these different capitals is a recognition of the sovereignty that Solomon Islands has, but an expression of concern at the same time. There are, however, some really outlandish comments that, and one which we've seen coming out from Australia, which suggests this Australia's Cuban crisis, and also going on to suggest that this kind of agreement with China would give Australia the impetus, the reason to go into Solomon Island, overthrow the Solomon Islands government and take over. I don't think that Canberra shares that opinion, but it's, it, it illustrates the kind of ideas that circulate among some people in Australia. Now, in your analysis uh, for the Lowy Institute, you mentioned on the situation, you mentioned that to protect sovereignty, Pacific Island countries must build deep knowledge about the intentions of those that they have security partnerships with. What do you mean by that? So for me, I think the the greatest security threat is the lack of knowledge. Uh, take, for instance, the lack of knowledge, perhaps on the part of the Solomon Islands. And I say this with due respect to people in foreign affairs and others who work in Solomon Islands, but perhaps limited knowledge on how China operates. And in particular, in how China, you know, has this thing about exporting its security apparatus. And they said it very clearly in their defense white paper of 2015 about exporting. So rather than having military bases in different countries, it's much more efficient to export China's security apparatus. And that is a lot to do with Chinese domestic security. So trying to ensure domestic security within China. But as Chinese investments and Chinese citizens move out of China, ensuring that the kind of security that you have domestically in China is also internationalized. And by internationalizing it, it becomes normalized and then therefore gives it legitimacy to be exercised out side of China. We've seen examples of that. For instance, the arrest of people in Fiji some years ago and their deportation back to China by deploying the Chinese police. We've seen it in Vanuatu as well. Uh, And so that way you protect China by internationalizing your security apparatus. You don't need to have military bases in other places. The picture that uh, in Australia, New Zealand, or even in Washington, that uh, some people have internalized is that there's going to be, you know, warships berthing at, at ports in the Solomon Islands. That is something that you don't see happening, right? Well, the other image that they have is the establishment of a of a of a naval base in the Solomons. I don't think that's going to happen, or at least it's not going to happen in the near future. That's not how Beijing operates. Beijing limits its international military presence. And as I mentioned in that article, the only military base that China has outside of China is in Djibouti in the Horn of Africa. And and therefore China, if, if it can internationalize its security apparatus from China, then it does not necessarily need to have military bases. Now, having said that, the agreement also provides for Chinese ships to have provisions or to have stopovers. That's, you know, they're doing it in other forms already. But perhaps in the case of the Solomon Islands, we would see an increased visibility of that in the Solomons, but does not necessarily mean the establishment of a naval base. 
You know, in your analysis for the Lowy Institute, uh, you ended with saying that the geopolitical competition is exacerbating domestic divisions that are likely to trigger conflict in the Solomon Islands. What are the chances of this debate actually fueling conflict on the ground? Well, we've seen it already. I mean, the right in Honiara in November of last year is as much to do with the debate about anti-China as it is about an expression of political differences within the Solomons. And I think that a lot of the issues that fuel these divisions within Solomon Islands are internal, uh, some of it are personal. And you would know this if you know the people who are involved in this. And then they then appropriate international relations issues to create or to appropriate it, to use it, to express very domestic issues. The debate going on between the central government and the Malaita province, and if you know the people involved, that becomes really evident. Yes, the anti-China issue becomes an issue that you hang on which you hang your expressions of difference. And I think that's the biggest thing that is the, the most immediate security challenge for Solomon Islands is that that could degenerate into violent conflicts. We've seen it happen in November of last year, and uh, the differences continue to exist. And I think some of our development partners, our international partners who do not really understand the nuances of domestic politics in the Solomons, they help to fuel that. And if they can understand how their actions or their rhetoric fuels that domestic difference and therefore conflict, I think they, they might learn about how they deal with it. Frontline Pacific healthcare workers have been on the clock from dawn to dusk responding to the need in their communities throughout New Zealand's COVID-19 outbreaks. Now, a Pacific health leader is calling on the government to pump more funding into Pacific medical providers to help build the support they need to keep going. Lydia Lewis has the story. Pacific communities have been bearing the brunt of the latest COVID outbreak. The Fono's COVID-19 welfare manager, Iropa Kupu, says the pressure has been huge. We're working still seven days a week and our frontline is working right through from morning till evening sometimes just to ensure that we cover all the referrals we're receiving because they come right through the whole day, even evening, in regards to urgent support provided for some families. So it's quite hectic, it's crazy times, but at the same time we're quite not used to it. Throughout the outbreak, four Pacific by Pacific health providers have been there to help. In fact, they carry quite a bit of the weight in terms of the response. The Fono CEO, Tevita Funaki, says Pacific peoples are facing chronic challenges and the government needs to commit to addressing them. The key in here is actually building the pipeline into Pacific to health careers. No doubt that the pool of Pacific staff available is limited. We, we've got to look at a whole development workforce strategy for Pacific, not you know, not just a band-aid solution. There is a hefty price tag, but Tevita Funaki says inequities need to be addressed imminently. In particular around the Auckland providers, we were looking at, at around total investments of just over $200 million. And this investment into core capabilities, that's including infrastructure support and also investment into the workforce. He says the Pacific healthcare workforce alone needs to be increased by half, among other urgent changes. Housing is a clear problem too, and when you have COVID, you stay home to stop the spread. A task easier for some than others. Because of 
the overcrowded homes. The economic well-being of Pacific around career and pathway. And then looking at the health reform to, to really focus around some of the inequities. When you look at some of the chronic illnesses and the conditions in there, that Pacific are highly represented in there. It's issues like these that push Pacifica into the vulnerable category when it comes to COVID-19. These inequities have been highlighted before, but Devita Funaki says the government simply cannot look away. At the height of the Omicron surge in Auckland, Pacifica made up 60% of hospitalisations and 50% of cases. There's no doubt in terms of the significant cases in terms of the Omicron outbreak in comparison to Delta. Even when we're looking at from last Friday, the 70,000 infections from August last year to now. Those are significant numbers. And, and part of it's around the impact in terms of the infectious nature of Omicron. But a frontline worker in Auckland believes that number is even higher. We're probably just scraping the surface. Families that we never engage with as a provider, we're finding more coming through as new families that we haven't dealt with before. They're not able to reach out and know who they can turn to. Auckland District Health Board recorded 3,342 positive COVID cases among its Pacific population for the week ending on the 27th of March, a drop from more than 10,000 two weeks prior. The top COVID-19 modeller says it looks like the outbreak has passed through the Pacific population earlier than other groups when looking at case numbers, but Michael Plank says COVID-19 is here to stay. In the short term, you know, relatively high levels of immunity mean that, that cases are coming down. But unfortunately, that infection that you get from prior infection is likely to be relatively short-lived. And so over time, that immunity will wane. So the Pacific community and other communities in, in New Zealand will gradually become susceptible to a second wave over time. He wants all community members to keep up mask wearing in the short term and tackle long-term issues like ventilation. With COVID-19 here to stay, Tevita Funaki says investment is needed now to support Pacific peoples. There's no doubt that you know, Pacific for Pacific stuff, that our languages and cultures are actually really important and understanding the context and the complexities around our families, you know, really utilising and capitalising on the trusted relationships. They won't go to, you know, most of them won't go to the system, but they'll come to us. He says there are major inequities in the system, but for Pacific, by Pacific initiatives work. A group seeking redress for the destruction caused by the Panguna mine in Bougainville has appointed three companies to make an assessment of the damage. The mining giant Rio Tinto was the company behind the huge copper and gold mine which shut down after sparking a decade-long civil war. While Rio Tinto has given away all ownership rights for Panguna, it has committed to helping with the assessment of the damage and is part of the Panguna Mine Legacy Impact Committee. That committee is set to hold its third meeting next Thursday. Don Wiseman spoke with local MP Theonila Rota Makbob, who has been instrumental in getting the company to contemplate the damage it has caused. He asked her about progress today. The progress so far has been that um, there's a technical subcommittee being formed for the overall committee to be now advised and be given the technical advice. So this meeting, the recent meeting that we had, has now clearly set the path forward for the assessment itself to be done 
as soon as possible after the next meeting on the 7th of April. Okay. Who is going to do that assessment? There were um, 17 companies, 17 globally reputable companies that were invited to express their interest to be part of this process. But when the shortlisted five were brought in the committee in the second meeting, we were able to then uh, look through the credibility of all the companies and also what they have and all of those. So we ended up choosing three companies. So these three companies were then seen as, well, not basically that they have everything that is required of them under the conditions that were laid in the complaint, which was to do um, social assessment, chemical and environmental. But technical subcommittee will be the one that's going to closely monitor every everything that the, the three companies are going to do. Who's paying for all of that? Who pays for it? Well, um, Rio Tinto is actually going to fund for all of these through an independent vehicle that was that is going to be approved very soon um, and it's going to be based in Australia, but there'll be Bougainvilleans, Papua New Guineans and other reputable people who are going to be part of that independent funding vehicle. With these companies that make their assessment, will they come back with one a list of the issues and a list of, uh, of the amount of money it's going to take to rehabilitate and so on? Yep, um, that's basically what it is. They're going to come back with the, well, it's in fact valuing of the issues that are going to be there and then the amount that it's going to cost for the cleanup but as it is currently Rio Tinto has not yet agreed on cleaning up funding the cleanup instead they've agreed on funding the assessment so we still have um we still yet to see from the assessment itself that it is the value I mean the assessment itself we determine the next step forward so I am still very much um, vocal and expecting that Rio Tinto will have to publicly make a commitment that it will fund the cleanup. As it is, uh, Rio Tinto is not committed to cleaning up, but they've committed to assessment, funding yeah. the assessment. I imagine that the big issue is just how independent these assessment companies are. Were they recommended by Rio Tinto? How do you know how independent they are? Well, um, because, I mean, for me, I am confident in the level of independence because of how, I mean, the process that it took in order for us to agree together. It was not real Tinto that recommended these companies. It was the oversight committee that is formed locally that has identified based on the the company profile that they've given and what they've done so far, all of those. It was the oversight committee that did the screening of the companies. That's Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Modemanda.